0: Well, good morning, Good Shepherd. (laughs) It is an absolute joy to be with you this morning. As Talbot mentioned, we used to come here, we used to be part of this community from 2007 to 2011. We lived right here in Steel Creek, Uh, Our oldest daughter went to Lake Wiley Elementary for first grade, and then when Rivergate Elementary opened, we were part of picking the name and the logo, and she got to be one of the first students there. And Emma and Easton, our other two kids, went to Good Shepherd Preschool, which provided really essential hours for me to study, because at the time I was in seminary. Um, We just loved our time here. Eliana was baptized on this very stage, our oldest. And uh, we still have our Good Shepherd mug, in the, in the cupboard of all our m- mugs. We have a lot of church mugs because we've moved a lot. And we still have on file the handwritten letter that Talbot wrote for to us after we visited Good Shepherd for the first time. Um, but it was kind of partly Talbot's fault that we left. Now, let me explain why. Um, I can remember a sermon series shortly before we moved um, called Top Secret. Does anybody remember Top Secret? There's a... Maybe a couple hands. All right, so one day as we came into the sanctuary, the greeters handed each one of us our very own little container of Play-Doh. And we were told we could play with it during the sermon and then eventually Talbot said, okay, I want you to form your Play-Doh into something that represents a dream that God has placed deep in your hearts. And so it took me like half a second to decide what to make with my Play-Doh. And there it is, I made a Torah scroll because at the same time that we were here i was a student at gordon conwell theological seminary just up the road on choate circle and i was immersing myself in the study of the scriptures because i had a passion for understanding the bible and for communicating it with others and i didn't know then that i would one day launch launch a YouTube channel called Torah Tuesday (laughs) with a scroll on it. I just knew that I loved the Old Testament and I wanted to help Christians engage with it and understand it better and know what to do with it. I think it was that same Sunday that we sang the old hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. And I remember I was sitting right about there and I remember the verse popping up on the screen and it just jumped out at me. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. You see, I was at a kind of a crossroads in my life. We had been missionaries for many years. I felt called to participate in God's work in the world. But I was really wired for academics. I thrive in the classroom, and I love to be in a library learning. And this created a bit of a tension for me, because I felt called to make a difference in the world, and I wondered if it was selfish to be in the library. And as we sang those words, take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose, the Holy Spirit reassured me that I could love God with my mind and that that was part of the kingdom work that needed to be done. And so we pressed ahead, I applied to doctoral programs, and not long afterwards, uh, we were headed to Illinois uh, for me to do a PhD in biblical theology. There was another thing that I really appreciated about Good Shepherd. Sometimes people start out to train for ministry, and they go into seminary, and they, they become... Uh, disenchanted with christianity they struggle with scripture or they just feel like the church is kind of there's problems there's hypocrisy there's whatever in the church and so they walk away and sometime around the time that i began studying at gordon conwell somebody did a study i can't remember exactly the details but the results uh, are very clear in my mind So somebody wanted to study what makes the difference between someone going to seminary and thriving and growing in their faith or becoming spiritually dry and walking away from God. What what is the difference between the one or the other? And they studied a whole bunch of students and tracked people and the result was clear and decisive. The single most significant factor into whether someone would grow spiritually or leave the faith was whether they were part of a vibrant Christian church at the same time that they were in seminary. And Good Shepherd was that place for me. I sat where you're sitting and I grew week by week and I felt God nourishing my faith in so many ways. Good Shepherd shaped me theologically in ways that are still paying dividends. Sometimes people go off to do further study and they're in graduate school and they begin to deconstruct what they heard in church. And I, I'm here to tell you that the things I heard in this room have never had to be deconstructed. What you're getting is not fluff, it's rooted and robust. I'm so glad you're here. Good Shepherd provided us with a community. It's a big church, but we found close friends and and participated in small groups. We served together in new ways. We were part of the ESL ministry when it started up here and Talbot asked me to be part of the altar prayer ministry, so I stood up front here to pray for people after the services, which was such a joy. We're so glad that we were here to learn, to grow, and to connect with God week after week. So it's meaningful to be back here with you and I'm excited to share some of what I've learned in the years since we moved. Tonight, as Talbot mentioned, I'll be sharing about the Old Testament Foundation for Christian Identity and Mission. I'm really passionate about this topic. If you are somebody who has kind of wondered, like, who am I and why am I here and how do I fit together my identity with what I'm supposed to do with my life, I would love to see you back here tonight at 6 o'clock in the living room. Um, As Talbot mentioned, I'll have copies of my books available. Bearing God's Name uh, is available in English and Spanish, and I have a book on praying the Psalms as well. This morning, we're gonna continue how to, we're gonna consider how to respond when life comes unglued. And the title of my message is Praying When Panic Attacks. The first thing I want us to do is put our feet flat on the floor and take a deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. We're going to be encountering an Old Testament story today that is pretty gnarly. It includes sexual violence and deeply dysfunctional family dynamics and even murder. And maybe even just the mention of these things is triggering for you. Experts tell us that panic attacks, you're in the middle of a panic attack series, that panic attacks are a sudden, intense onset of panic. And the symptoms range from rapid heartbeat to dry mouth to sweating. If I'm sweating this morning, it's more likely because I'm on stage than that I'm having a panic attack. Um, But dizziness, nausea, shaking... Um, And all of these things come on them when you don't want them to. You didn't ask for it, it just happens. It's not something that you can control. So I want you to know two things as we get started this morning. One, if you're feeling like you need a breath of fresh air, you have my full permission to stand up and walk outside. I don't know how fresh the air actually is outside. This is Charlotte. Um, But you're welcome to, to reset if you need to. And the second thing I want to just reassure you of is that experts tell us that panic attacks are actually not dangerous. It can feel really debilitating, it can feel like I think I'm dying, but experts say that your body will, knows what to do and that it's not actually physically dangerous to have a panic attack. So, I'm not a trained therapist, I'm not a medical doctor, but I felt like we should start with some of these disclaimers. Um, Because if you're suffering from frequent panic attacks, it would be a really good idea for you to see somebody who's trained, who can help you figure out how to reduce the stresses so that these things don't keep happening to you. But this morning, I'm here as a fellow traveler and as as a Bible scholar, and what I'm hoping to do is to open up new prayer resources for you that can help you navigate panic in your life. I believe that prayer does more than and less than what we often assume. Let's start with the less than. Prayer is not, as much as we'd like it to be, a magic wand. If it was a magic wand, None of us would have aches and pains. We would have all slept well last night. Our family trials would have gone away, right? Like, it's not a magic wand. We don't pray and then snap. Everything's all fine. Um, My family's been praying for my Uncle Harvey. For months and months, he's been battling cancer. And this morning, I woke up to a text saying that he had gone to be with Jesus. Jesus. Prayer didn't miraculously heal him as much as he had full faith that God could and would do so. So prayer's not a quick fix. But prayer is also more than just therapeutic. It's not just getting stuff off our chest. Prayer actually changes things. It changes us. It aligns us with the character of God and the priorities of God, and it enlists us in kingdom work. So... Are you ready? That was a long preamble to what we're going to talk about this morning. Now let's get to work. A few years ago, I heard for the first time the lyrics of a country western song uh, about prayer. Now, maybe you listen to country western music and this is an old favorite of yours. I hadn't heard it before and it kind of stopped me in my tracks. It's a song about a guy whose girlfriend broke up with him and he is ticked. And he heard an online preacher saying, or a radio preacher or something, saying that he ought to pray for people. And so he thought, okay, I'll pray for you. And here's how he prayed. I pray your brakes run out going down a hill. I pray a flower pot falls from a window sill and knocks you in the head like I'd like to. I pray your birthday comes and nobody calls. I pray you're flying high when your engine stalls. I pray all your dreams never come true. Just know wherever you are, honey, I'll pray for you. (laughs) Okay, so this is, and you can Google it at your own risk. I've had this song stuck in my head all month long this is certainly not what the preacher had in mind when he encouraged this man to pray. Chris Macedo doesn't lead us in songs like this, thank the Lord. And Talbot and Chris don't preach (laughs) on prayers like this. Our gut tells us that to pray like this is totally off limits. But then we open up the Bible to the book of Psalms and we find some prayers that sound An awfully lot like this song and we wonder what do we do with that declare them guilty God banish them for their many sins for they have rebelled against you break the arm of the wicked man call the evildoer to account for his wickedness what do we do with that now I'm told y'all had a sermon series just last year called Survivor Songs, in which you tackled these difficult prayers, but we might have some new faces here today who weren't around for that, so let me, in a nutshell, tell you how I handle these psalms. Yes, our God is slow to anger and abounding in love. He's full of mercy, but the Bible tells us he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He takes wickedness and sin seriously, And he calls us to take it seriously as well. In fact, the entire story of the Bible from beginning to end is the story of the good world God made and his good intentions for the world and how sin came in and corrupted that good world. And the entire narrative is about God's plan to crush the serpent, to put a decisive end to evil and to bring us back to restore what he intended from the beginning. (laughs) so when we pray with jesus your kingdom come your will be done we're praying for god to crush wickedness that's the whole point point. and i don't know if you've read the book of revelation but it's a pretty violent book and it is for good reason because wickedness has to be stopped these ugly psalms where people pray their panic are part of this biblical movement for justice. They yearn for a better world where no one takes advantage of anyone else. So let's try one on for size. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 3. Psalm chapter three, and the first thing you notice when you turn to Psalm 3 is this little note at the top, a Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Now, this is a reference to a backstory, a historical moment in David's life. We're being invited to read this psalm in light of this specific circumstance for David. So if we want to understand the psalm and get the most out of it, we should know the backstory. And to do that, we have to go to 2 Samuel 13 through 18, which is too many chapters for me to read aloud to you today. So what I'm going to do is give you the Cliff Notes version of this story in David's life. So perhaps you've heard the story of Amnon and Tamar. Maybe not, and that's okay, too. I'm going to tell you what you need to know. Amnon and Tamar are both children of David's, but they have different mothers, so they're half-siblings. And nevertheless, even though they're half-siblings, Amnon can't keep his eyes off his sister Tamar, and he arranges with David's unwitting help for Tamar to come see him and be alone with him where he violates her. When David hears what happened, he is furious, but he does nothing. Now, Tamar has another brother. His name is Absalom, and Absalom's a full brother of hers. And he is also livid. And he's like, since dad's not doing anything about this, I guess I have to deal with it. And so Absalom bides his time. He waits for two years. And then he says, hey, dad, would you send my brother Amnon to a feast I'm having out of town? And David, ever the gullible father, sends Amnon to Absalom's feast where where Absalom has him killed. It's so confusing, all the A names in Samuel. Anyway, Absalom kills Amnon. And then David is really upset and Absalom is afraid, so he, he stays away from his father for three whole years and there's no contact between them. Finally, David sends for Absalom. He doesn't know what to do. He wants to be with his son, but it's really awkward. And so he brings Absalom to Jerusalem, but then doesn't call him to the palace, and they still don't talk for two more years. Can you talk about awkward? It's like the silence between them is deafening. Finally, Absalom arranges for a meeting with his father, but it appears that the rift between them is unsolvable and that David's inability to solve this is gonna create deeper problems. Because while he's been living in Jerusalem, Absalom uses his superior good looks and his suave personality to win everyone over to his cause and to make them think he'll be their champion and he has their best interest in mind. And so after these two years have elapsed, Absalom, leaves town on a pretense and while he's out of town he declares himself to be king and then marches on jerusalem now david has two choices he can fight or he can run and he decides to run he evacuates jerusalem absalom arrives in the city and his first order of business is to rape all of his father's concubines on the rooftop in broad daylight i told you this was a messy story This is his way, it's an ancient Near Eastern way of showing who's boss. And this is, by the way, the same Absalom who was really upset over the rape of his sister. So now we can see he's not a justice guy, he's just a selfish guy. His vision of justice has some work, needs some work to it. So if you were feeling like your family was a mess, David says, welcome to the club. And now we're ready to read the Psalm with the backstory in mind, with David on the run from his son Absalom. He begins by praying, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. He's not wrong either. He is seriously being pursued by a lot of people. You're gonna notice as we read this Psalm how often David says, me, I, and my. He's very self-preoccupied in this psalm, and I love it that this is in the Bible because this is exactly how you and I are in crisis. We, are, we have our eyes on ourselves And David is overwhelmed by how many are rising up against him. These people who are chasing him were his citizens, his subjects, just a few days ago. And now they're trying to get rid of him. And what they're saying is audacious as well. God will not deliver him. So that's the big question. Will he? Will God deliver David or not? But then breaking with this cry of distress, David makes an about face in verse 3. And he says, but you, Lord... Are a shield around me normally when we uh when when we i've never been in battle but when a soldier goes into battle face-to-face combat they carry a, a shield in front of them right to block the arrows of the enemy that as they're facing david says this shield is around him He's got 360 degree protection from the Lord and that's helpful because he's running for his life. So he needs somebody covering his back, not just his front. He says, you're my glory and the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. This is interesting because his holy mountain would be Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is, where the temple is. place david just left and actually as david was on his way out of the city some of the priests came to him and they took the ark of the covenant and they said okay we're on your team let's go and david said no no send send that back you stay here david had a clear sense that although he was in exile yahweh was not His rule was not threatened. And so when David prays to Yahweh, he's praying to Yahweh in the temple and he's imagining an answer coming from there. But what is the answer? How does he answer me from his holy mountain? Because if you keep reading, you can see the crisis has not been resolved. We're still very much on the run from Absalom. So what is the answer God sends? We find out in verse five. And this is... Is a class b miracle i lie down and sleep i wake again because the lord sustains me wow can you imagine david on the run from his son running for his life he's able to lay down and get a good night's sleep i don't know if you're like me but when i'm in crisis sleep is hard to come by Maybe you've lain in bed at night and played a conversation over and over in your head, thinking of all the things you should have said or all the things you wish you could say. Or maybe you lie in bed at night and every little sound jerks you awake again. A door closes, a car goes by, and your central nervous system is on such high alert that you just can't relax enough to sleep. This is such an amazing moment in the story because God's gift to David is so practical. David, David's struggle was no less intense than yours or mine, and yet God meets him in his mad dash for safety and gives him a good night's sleep. David wakes up in the morning, and he's still alive, and he's able to declare, I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side, which is... Probably not an exaggeration. He's able to be, he, he's able to experience trust in God in the midst of this crisis. And then in verse seven, he renews his, his plea for God to do something about this. He says, Arise, Lord. Now, God has given him good gifts already sleep, safety, trust, to at least temporary safety. He's safe so far. But David still has striking needs. The crisis isn't over yet. And so he calls upon God to deliver him. Notice he says, deliver me, my God, which is exactly what his enemies said God would not do. God will not deliver him. David's like, prove them wrong, Lord. Show them that you are the God who will deliver and that you'll deliver me because I haven't done anything to deserve this. You put me on that throne and that's where I ought to be. But then his requests turn more specific and more violent strike all my enemies on the draw break the teeth of the wicked what do we do with that this is not one of those verses of the Psalms that's going to end up on your wall above your fireplace right at least I hope not <laughs> David is serious about God doing something about the problem that he's facing. This may sound awfully violent, but notice that the punishment fits the crime. The enemies have been saying, God will not deliver him. And so David says, strike them on the jaw, prove them wrong, Lord, and then make it so that they can never make an audacious statement like this again. But surely this request is out of bounds, isn't it? Like, can David actually pray for God to be violent? Here's the deal, and we we can't miss this. David does not break their jaw. He prays for God to do so. David takes his crisis and he puts it on God's desk and asks God to handle it. And doing that frees David to be nonviolent. It frees him to let go of his angst and entrust it to God. By articulating his deepest desires for justice, he bears his soul in God's presence so that nothing is hidden. And then he can let it go because God is on it. David, David's panic must be prayed if he's going to experience peace Biblical prayer is not an escape from reality. It faces that gritty reality head on. The psalm ends with these two lines, from the Lord comes deliverance. Another expression of trust, that God will be the kind of God who delivers. And then he concludes with something with a bit wider view than his own situation. He says, may your blessing be on your people. As king, David realizes that his own crisis has bigger ramifications for his whole nation. And he's asking that God would once again bless the people and show, him, show them his power. So how does David's story end? If we flip, flip back to 2 Samuel 18, it's really fascinating to compare David's actions as king with the psalm that we just read. Because I think I suspect that some of you are nervous about praying prayers like Psalm 3 because you worry that they're going to make you violent, or they're going to make you bitter, or they're going to make you angry. And that's why it's really interesting to compare what he prayed with what he did. And in 2 Samuel 18, verse 4, this is what we hear. So the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, his commanders, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders Be gentle with Absalom. This is the same David who prayed, break the teeth of the wicked. And who's the wicked in this story? Absalom. And yet he, his actions as king are to be merciful, be gentle, because he trusts that God is gonna take care of this issue. He doesn't need his army to do it for him. Well, the battle, Uh, The battle is successful according to David's soldiers. Absalom is Mr. Handsome with long tresses of hair. And maybe you've heard the story. He's riding his donkey under a tree with low branches and his hair gets caught in the tree. And there he's hanging when a soldier comes upon him and spears him to death. So when the news reaches David that Absalom has died, here's how David responds. The king was shaken He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David's prayer had called for justice, but his orders called for mercy. And this is proof, his response to Absalom's death is proof that he had let go of his own need for revenge. Because when we pray our panic, it leads to peace. David experienced this, and so can we. Sooner or later, if we haven't already, every one of us in this room is going to face something distressing that's bigger than what we can handle. Someone whose own hurts have never been healed, who takes it out on us, seems bent on ruining us. Let's face it. The turbulence of this world is not just something we read about on the news. It comes right into our own homes and our extended families and our workplaces and even into our churches. Like David, trouble hits a little too close to home. And when it does, we're invited to come as we are to God in prayer, to say it like it is. God can handle our deepest distress And as we do so, we're participating in this narrative arc that I talked about. We're trusting that the same God who helped David is the God who's going to put to death the wicked, who's going to end wickedness and stamp out evil and usher in his kingdom. I identify deeply with this psalm and those like it. I, too, was a leader in exile with someone who I used to call friend bent on destroying me. I lost weight, I lost sleep, I lost time and I was worried that my entire career would come to an end before it even started. I was told that I could only talk about this situation with my spouse, my pastor and a counselor and while they were all great, what I really needed was an advocate. I needed somebody who would stand up for me and fight for what was right and I had none, and it was in that dark valley that I discovered the Psalms. I'd read the Psalms before, I'd seen them on greeting cards. I thought, you know, David is awfully paranoid. He seems to always have someone chasing him, or someone who doesn't believe him, or someone saying bad things about him. I wasn't sure what to do with it. But then I was in my own crisis, and I found in the Psalms words to pray when i was out of words i didn't know what to say and david helped me articulate to god the deepest needs and deepest desires of my heart i was not alone in being falsely accused in being chased others had been betrayed by friends i was not alone I'm so grateful to these faithful saints for giving me the words to pray when I had none of my own. In those days, I prayed the Psalms as a matter of survival. I couldn't get through a day without a Psalm. One of my favorites was from Psalm 10, call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. It was a harrowing experience, but it was also a precious one. Because it wasn't until I was in that crisis that I discovered what matchless grace God had for those in crisis. His grace turned my darkest valley into a place of deepest comfort. I felt completely isolated. My only advocate was invisible. But what a marvelous job God did when I prayed my panic and he went to work behind the scenes. You are not alone. Even if no human stands beside you to defend you, you have the most powerful being in the universe who's looking out for you and who hears your prayers. You have a safe place to express your hurt. You don't have to leave it at the door. You can bring all of it into the presence of God. He can handle it. That country song we heard just a little while ago didn't get it quite right, did it? It expressed a vindictiveness without God that was far out of proportion to the hurt that was caused. The Psalms are not like this. In the Psalms, we don't get wishing random harm on your enemies. In the Psalms, there's always a clear connection between what the enemy has done and what the psalmist is asking God to do in response. In every case, the punishment fits the crime. If the enemies have been speaking evil, then the psalmist prays for their mouths to be stopped. If they've been laying traps or digging pits for people to fall into, then the psalmist prays that they will fall into their own traps or their own pits. If they've been making secret plans to do wicked things, the psalmist prays that those plans would be exposed for what they truly were. In the end, the psalmist's desire for God to put a stop to the wicked reflects a deep desire for right to be done and justice to prevail. It's kingdom work. We don't need to leave these psalms aside or say they're primitive or or they don't fit our faith. They fit squarely within our faith. When we pray our panic, it leads to peace. Not just inner peace, although we experience that as well, in prayer we align our priorities with the God who has announced his intention to put an end to evil and make all things well. Prayer participates in the reorienting of our hearts so that we hate what God hates and love what God loves. As we engage in these prayers, the Spirit even convicts us of sin. We begin to ask ourselves, is there anybody out there who needs to pray an imprecatory prayer because of me? Then I have to repent and stop doing whatever it is I'm doing. God delights to take action in response to our prayers. God resolved my tough situation without me having to defend myself. I don't know what you're facing right now, I don't know what burdens you brought with you through these doors. Maybe you're facing the the trauma of unhealed relationships. Maybe for you it's financial strain that's getting worse. Maybe, Maybe for you it's a health diagnosis or a health journey that's been a battle. Or maybe it's the stress of an unsustainable workload and you just don't know when you can get a break. And even if things are going pretty well for you personally, we don't have far to look to find crisis in our world right now. The war in Ukraine, I don't know if you've heard the stat, but it's now 100 million refugees who've been displaced from their homes across our world, the most ever. Gun violence so frequent that it's hard to keep track of where it happened last. Rampant inflation, environmental degradation, political polarization that cuts right through our families and makes Thanksgiving and Christmas really awkward, and a pandemic that should have been done by now, but we're dealing with another wave of infections and looking, at least in LA County, at more mandatory masks. This is not a fun time to be alive. And it's easy to panic, but you and I have kingdom work to do So let's get praying and let's pray boldly because when we pray our panic, it leads to peace. Let me pray for you. Father, we are so grateful that you invite us to come as we are, to say it like it is, to bring you our distress. Thank you that you don't ask us to handle it on our own that you don't need us to be competent and capable on our own but that you delight in stepping in with your power and your goodness to set things right god we trust that you are a powerful and good god and that you are bringing all things to an end all wickedness and evil to an end and that your plan is to restore what is good and to make all things new. Lord, today, whatever burdens are represented in this room, we just ask that you would intervene. We ask that you would put a stop to wickedness as you've promised to do, and that you would equip every person in this room to pray honestly and to pray boldly, that we would expect to see you at work, and that you would find us faithful as we seek to participate in that work in faithful ways we pray this in jesus glorious name amen